He left a very good job for this, I want to tell you. President Trump made this remark about his first Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson. While Tillerson left the White House in March of 2018, it is worth noting that he had to step down from his position as the head of ExxonMobil to become Trump's Secretary of State. So the question emerges, if Tillerson had such a good job before coming to the White House, then why did he become Trump's Secretary of State? And how does he compare to the previous bearers of that position? In this episode of Politics with Paxton, I will be examining the legacy of Rex Tillerson. Who will Tillerson be compared to when the history books about him are written? Some of the most famous names in the history of the United States were once secretaries of state. Six secretaries of state went on to become presidents. Thomas Jefferson, who was, in fact, the first secretary of state. James Madison, James Monroe, John Quincy Adams, Martin Van Buren, and James Buchanan. Many other secretaries of state also made incredible contributions to the United States and its relationships with political counterparts around the world. So what makes Tillerson stand out when compared to these other famous men and women? Did Tillerson increase the United States' trade around the world like Secretary of State John Milton Hay did with his open-door policy? Did Tillerson secretly negotiate with another power in order to put an end to a war like Secretary of State Henry Kissinger did with North Vietnam in order to end the Vietnam War? What will Tillerson be remembered for? The answer to that question is actually quite complicated, although perhaps one of the clearest depictions of Tillerson's role in the Trump White House was offered in a fit of rage by former Trump National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, as recounted in the book Fear by Bob Woodward. According to Woodward, McMaster said to Tillerson, quote-unquote, You are off doing your own thing, but it's never with the National Security Council. That's what we're here to do. You're affirmatively seeking to undermine the national security process. End quote. This quote by McMaster shows that Tillerson, at least according to McMaster, was damaging the ability of the United States to work diligently across the globe because he refused to work alongside his fellow diplomats and national security experts. Although Tillerson's solo act could be easier for him to manage, it could also lead to misunderstandings among governments of what the unified stance of the United States is on certain issues. These misunderstandings could potentially lead to disaster. I am Paxton Phillips, and this is Politics with Paxton. So why did Trump hire Rex Tillerson in the first place? Well, the president has had an odd habit of appointing cabinet members and top officials with close connections to the Russian government, and his choice of Tillerson as Secretary of State is no exception. Sanam Sheth reported in her Business Insider article titled, A Timeline of Rex Tillerson's Relationship with Russian President Vladimir Putin, how Tillerson had first met Putin on the Sakhalin Island in Russia's Far East in 1999. 
according to the book Collusion by Luke Harding, Tillerson was merely an executive at Exxon when he had his first fateful encounter with Putin. Tillerson managed to successfully strike a deal with Igor Sechin of the Russian oil company Rosneft. Many foreign executives before Tillerson had tried but were unsuccessful in making deals with Rosneft, and Tillerson stood out for doing so. Tillerson formed a close partnership with Sechin, who apparently mentioned his desire to ride motorbikes in the United States with Tillerson. The Washington Post article, What is the Russian Order of Friendship and Why Does Rex Tillerson Have One? by David Filipov, described how Sechin's relationship with Putin had led to Sechin being seen as, quote-unquote, Putin's loyal lieutenant, end quote. And Tillerson's friendly relationship with not only Putin, but also Sechin, would later raise some eyebrows. Even South Carolina's Republican Senator Lindsey Graham would go on to call the fact that Putin was honoring Tillerson with a friendship medal, quote-unquote, unnerving. Tillerson became the CEO of Exxon in 2006. Sheth recounts how Exxon made yet another deal with Rosneft in 2011. This deal was particularly significant since it was a 3.2 billion oil deal. Not surprisingly, Tillerson, as head of Exxon, was critical of the United States' 2014 sanctions on Russia, saying that they caused, quote-unquote, broad collateral damage. As recounted by Now This News, Tillerson was CEO of Exxon for 10 years, and during his tenure as the CEO of Exxon, Tillerson was awarded the Order of Friendship by none other than Russian President Vladimir Putin. Filipov explained that the Russian Order of Friendship is an award that was established in 1994 by Russian President Boris Yeltsin, and Tillerson was not the first American to be given this prestigious Russian award. The pianist Van Cliburn, basketball coach David Blatt, and Museum of Russian Art in Minneapolis founder Raymond E. Johnson were all Americans that were given the Order of Friendship. That being said, none of these men would go on to become the United States Secretary of State, America's chief diplomat, and one of President Trump's closest confidants. What does it mean to receive the Russian Order of Friendship? Johnson, the founder of the Museum of Russian Art in Minneapolis, interpreted the fact that he received the award as meaning, quote-unquote, that they were proud of what we were doing and not angry about our having a large part of their art history, end quote. Putin, being proud of what Tillerson was accomplishing in his role at Exxon, is not the typical criteria of what a United States president should consider when choosing his or her secretary of state. However, Trump has proved time and time again that he is not a typical president. Given the numerous ties that members of Trump's inner circle have had to people connected to the Russian government, one must wonder if Tillerson's close relationship with Putin encouraged Trump to pick him as his chief diplomat in the first place. Although some involved in the 2016 presidential campaign now claim that they did not know that some of Trump's associates, including Tillerson, had ties to Russia, there seems to be evidence that indicates otherwise. In the Axios article, Exclusive Leaked Trump Vetting Docs by Jonathan Swan, Juliet Bartz, Elena Treen, and Orion Rumler, it is revealed that among a host of almost 100 vetting documents, the Trump transition team identified numerous, quote-unquote, red flags. 
for people that Trump was considering for top White House positions. Several key Trump associates, including Trump's current chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, and Tillerson, were examined in those vetting documents. Although the shocking red flag identified for General David Petraeus that he was opposed to torture received arguably the most media coverage, Tillerson's red flag is just as important. A vetting document on Tillerson read, according to this Axios report, that, quote-unquote, Tillerson's Russia ties go deep, end quote. This shows that the Trump transition team was clearly aware of Tillerson's past and current ties with Russia and that someone viewed his ties with Russia as a red flag. However, this red flag did not stop Tillerson from getting the position of Secretary of State in the Trump administration. In fact, according to the testimony provided by Tillerson to the United States House Committee on Foreign Affairs on June 20th, 2019, it was Tillerson's ties to foreign governments, Russia included, that seemed to most interest Trump. In Tillerson's testimony, he tells the House Committee that Trump's vice president-elect, Mike Pence, called him and that Tillerson decided to, quote-unquote, take that call, end quote. Tillerson described that in the call, quote-unquote, Vice President Pence just said a number of people have told the president that he should spend a little time talking with you because of your position, your role in the world. You know all the heads. You know many of the heads of state, of countries that are important. You have a perspective on the current state of our relationships and affairs, and would you be willing to come up and just talk to the president about it? And so I told him that I would, end quote. In retrospect, it seems like too much of a coincidence that Tillerson was chosen as Secretary of State because he may have had his relationships with numerous other leaders around the world, and more likely, that it was specifically his incredibly strong relationship with Putin that interested Trump. When you take into account that Pence was only introduced to Trump because of the actions of Paul Manafort, a Russian lobbyist, the situation in which Tillerson was hired appears even more duplicitous. In Jacqueline Alemany's CBS News article titled, Donald Trump Offered Chris Christie Vice President Role Before Mike Pence, sources say, it is revealed that when Manafort and Trump were campaigning in Indiana, Manafort cleverly made up a story about how Trump's plane had mechanical issues, forcing Trump to stay at Pence's house for the night. Trump had not yet picked his running mate, and, according to the New York Times article titled A Grounded Plane and Anti-Clinton Passion, How Mike Pence Swayed the Trumps by Maggie Haberman, Alexander Burns, and Ashley Parker, the next morning, the Trump and Pence, quote-unquote, families were chatting politely over coffee when Mr. Pence, a mild-mannered Midwesterner, delivered an uncharacteristically impassioned monologue, according to people with direct knowledge of the remarks, end quote. His monologue focused on his hatred of the Clinton family, one of Trump's favorite targets. Pence's speech worked. Haberman, Burns, and Parker hint at the fact that had Pence not given this speech to Trump, he may never have become vice president. And, as Alemany wrote in her article, Pence would never 
have been able to give this speech to Trump if Manafort had not convinced Trump that his plane had mechanical issues and that he had to stay with Pence and his family for the night. Manafort, as recounted in Franklin Ford's article in The Atlantic titled Paul Manafort, American Hustler, proposed that Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska finance his attempts to influence politics, business dealings, and news coverage inside the United States, Europe, and former Soviet republics to benefit President Vladimir Putin's government, end quote. It is clear that Manafort was basically acting as an agent of the Kremlin, campaigning for Russian interests across the globe. And it seems like Manafort had a goal to make Pence the next vice president of the United States, which he succeeded in doing. The fact that the current vice president was the first choice pick of Manafort, a man who had spent years championing for the interests of the Russian government, one of the United States' primary adversaries on the world stage, should have been enough to raise some eyebrows. However, it should be equally suspicious that the vice president who was chosen in such a suspicious way, was the one who reached out to Tillerson, a CEO who was close with Putin and who had received the Russian order of friendship about joining the Trump administration as Secretary of State. It seems likely that Trump had to be aware of all these Russian connections, but did not seem to care. It also seems likely that Trump was drawn to Tillerson precisely because of these Russian connections. And if Trump was, in fact, adamant on hiring a pro-Russia Secretary of State, then this red flag would have ironically only encouraged Trump to pick Tillerson. In Politico's article titled, Putin jokes that he regrets awarding Tillerson order of friendship, Lewis Nelson describes how, despite their long history doing lucrative deals together, Putin distanced himself from Tillerson, saying that Tillerson had, quote-unquote, fallen in with the wrong company, end quote, after becoming Trump's Secretary of State. However, as Vladimir Milov put it, as quoted in the Los Angeles Times article titled, Rex Tillerson's Four Decades at ExxonMobil could hamper his role as America's top diplomat by Tracy Wilkinson and Ivan Penn. The appointment of Tillerson to this position of United States Secretary of State, quote unquote, is very beneficial for Putin, end quote. Milov went on to say how the Tillerson appointment, quote unquote, will mean the end of values of the American foreign policy vector, and a transfer to purely pragmatic deals on certain matters, end quote. If what Milov said was true, then one could easily conclude that Tillerson was more of a bad actor than a hero or a force of good in his role as Secretary of State because Russia is supposed to be one of the United States' most ardent foes, and the United States is supposed to protect countries like the Ukraine from Russia's spreading influence. However, with the United States Secretary of State that is more sim- sympathetic to Russia, like Tillerson, Putin had the opportunity to gain more power, especially at the expense of other weaker countries, like the Ukraine. This is what Tillerson may be ultimately partially remembered for, turning a blind eye to Russia as it sought to consolidate power throughout Europe and Asia, 
a blind eye that some may say ended up enabling and empowering Putin in that quest. Undoubtedly, a major aspect of Tillerson's legacy will likely be devoted to his complex and, as I've pointed out, often problematic role as another Trump associate with close ties to Russia. It will likely be challenging for Trump critics to forget the illustration that Harding paints in his book that in 2013, Tillerson, with Putin's close subordinate, Sechin, at his side, drank champagne to celebrate his acquisition of the Russian Order of Friendship. It is clear that Tillerson's close connections to Russia would be ties that he and Trump would not be able to escape from so easily. Tillerson's history with Russia and Putin was so unusual and odd that Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia released a statement after Trump nominated Tillerson in which he expressed his concerns regarding Tillerson as the next Secretary of State, according to MSNBC reporter Kyle Griffin. Kaine announced that Tillerson's quote-unquote Close connection to Vladimir Putin and the Russian government raises serious questions at a time when our national intelligence agencies have concluded that Russia engaged in cyber espionage against the United States during the 2016 presidential election, end quote. Kane's statement and concerns, however, did little to stop Tillerson from becoming Secretary of State. Harding recalls that how when Tillerson became the United States Secretary of State, he was one of the only officials present during Trump's first one-on-one -on -one meeting with Putin at the 2017 G20 summit, along with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. Due to his first-hand account of these talks, Tillerson quickly became an important source regarding what transpired during Trump and Putin's meeting. Tillerson announced that, quote-unquote, there was very clear positive chemistry, end quote, between Trump and Putin. Tillerson said that although Trump saw a commitment from Putin that he would not interfere in the politics of the United States, neither Trump nor Putin saw much need in, quote-unquote, relitigating, end quote, the past between their respective countries. Tillerson also informed the American people that Trump and Putin have agreed to a ceasefire in southwest Syria. Tillerson, however, apparently failed to include in his retelling a significant moment in the meeting in his analysis that was later revealed by Lavrov. Lavrov told the public that Trump had accepted Putin's promise that the Russian government had nothing to do with the hacking that had occurred just before the 2016 presidential election. This meant that, if Lavrov's analysis of the events in the meeting between Trump and Putin was accurate, then Trump had accepted Putin's explanation for a series of events over the conflicting explanation of that same series of events that was made by Trump's own intelligence agencies. Lavrov's announcement severely hurt Trump politically. Lavrov's announcement also damaged the reputation of Tillerson. The problem with having so few people present in the meeting between Trump and Putin was that there was not many other people that could confirm or deny the allegations that Lavrov had levied. When Tillerson released his report of the events that took place in that fateful G20 meeting, he did not mention an instance in which Trump had accepted Putin's explanation for the events in 2016. By publicly releasing his statement that highlighted important details that Tillerson failed to acknowledge, Lavrov damaged the credibility of Tillerson. Of course, Lavrov could have been lying. 
After all, Lavrov harbors anti-American sentiment. Tom O'Connor, in his Newsweek article, titled, Russia says U.S. no longer rules the world as tensions mount in Middle East, Europe, and space, described Lavrov stating that there is a, quote-unquote, categorical reluctance of the United States and its Western allies to agree that the 500-year-long period of Western domination in world affairs is coming to an end, end quote. Lavrov seems to vehemently hate the United States, and he could have just lied about what Trump said in his meeting with Putin in order to sow discord throughout the United States. However, if Lavrov was telling the truth, and Tillerson deliberately misled the public in order to protect Trump, Putin, or both, or even himself and his own Russian business interests, one has to realize that in this moment, he was a bad actor, actively working against the interests of the United States, and clearly cannot be seen as a hero, right? Well, with Tillerson, nothing is ever that simple. Ultimately, no matter what is written about Tillerson's relationships with other countries and his power in the West Wing, historians cannot ignore Tillerson's dubious connections to the Russian government and the suspicious role that he played in Trump and Putin's very first meeting. Tillerson understood Putin on a seemingly better level than Trump did. According to Politico's article titled, Trump trashes Tillerson for saying Putin outfoxed him by Nahal Tusi and Quint Forgey during a July 2017 meeting in Hamburg, Germany with Russian government officials, according to people that Tillerson had spoken to. Tillerson agreed to their terms of not having anyone in the meeting take notes of what transpired. One of the people that Tillerson spoke to remarked that, quote unquote, Tillerson said, it's the way the Russians preferred it, end quote. Tillerson understood the Russian officials and knew how to negotiate with them. This concession by Tillerson to do things the Russian way can be seen as a positive, since he clearly knew how to diplomatically work with the Russian government. In this instance, Tillerson's history and close ties to Russia was definitely a benefit to the United States. He understood that the militaristic action would not easily subdue the growing threat of Russia, and he did his best to peacefully negotiate with Russia. In his testimony to the House, Tillerson defended not having note-takers in his meeting with the Russian government officials by saying, quote-unquote, it's the way the Russians preferred it, end quote. This was exactly what Politico reported Tillerson had told another person about why there were no note-takers in the meeting. Tillerson clearly was trying to improve the relationship that the United States had with Russia and allowing the Russian government officials to have their demands answered in the meetings may have been the first step in doing so. Tillerson was eternally dedicated to making sure the relationship between the United States and Russia improved, and his history with Russia made it easier for him to work well with the Russian officials. In his testimony to the House Committee, Tillerson said that in his first meeting with Putin as Secretary of State, he told Putin that, quote-unquote, the relationship is the worst it's been since the Cold War, but I looked him in the eye and I said, but it can get worse, and we can't let that happen, end quote. This detail certainly makes Tillerson appear more heroic and that his intent was to try to bridge the contentious gap between the United States and Russia. It could also reframe the instance in which Tillerson agreed to the Russian demand of no note-takers being present in the meeting as evidence of Tillerson merely trying to be respectful as possible to the Russian government officials in order to rebuild the United States and Russia's relationship, and not something more sinister. 
According to the testimony, Tillerson told the House Committee when talking about Putin that, quote unquote, I've known this guy a long time, I've dealt with him a long time, and one thing I know he respects is people speaking the truth to him. Whether he acknowledges that truth or not, that's his choice, but he respects people who speak the truth to him, and that they stick with it. That's what he respects. End quote. This detail supports the idea that Tillerson's history with Russia could have actually benefited the United States in that he knew what Putin respected and what Russian officials preferred. Because of his history with Russia, Tillerson could make Putin and the Russian officials feel respected and much more willing to work with Tillerson. And perhaps Tillerson's strong understanding of Russia was even more important because Trump did not seem to know how to interact with Russian government officials. In Tillerson's testimony, he says that in regards to Trump's relationship with Russia, quote-unquote, he was learning a lot along the way, you know, and just like I had a deep understanding of Russia because I had spent so much time there, there were other parts of the world I didn't have a deep understanding of, and I had to build a steep learning curve. So I think that's what the president was doing. He was having to learn along the way, and not unlike most presidents when they come in, end quote. So Tillerson obviously understood the values and characteristics that Russian government officials tended to favor more than Trump did. That understanding that Tillerson had put him in a much better position than Trump to try to fix the United States and Russia's damaged relationship, something that Tillerson certainly wanted to accomplish. Tillerson even mentioned in his House testimony how he had told Putin when he was Secretary of State that, quote, quote, you know... We could spend the rest of this administration's time relitigating the past, or we can just say, look, we are where we are. What do you want to do now? And I said I had some ideas on what we should do, and, and then we talked about that, end quote. Tillerson went on to say that Putin, quote unquote, acknowledged that it wasn't good that our countries had poor relations. He agreed that it wasn't good for them, it wasn't good for the world, and expressed a desire to find a way to improve that. I'm not saying those were his words, but I'm summarizing, because it was a much more lengthy response than that. End quote. It does seem from this testimony that Tillerson genuinely wanted to improve the relationship of the United States and Russia, even if he also had other motivations for wanting to improve this relationship that may not have been as genuine. Tillerson certainly wanted Putin to see him as just not another Secretary of State, but as a diplomat who could bring new thought into the geopolitical arena to heal wounds that existed in the relationship between Putin and previous American presidents and their administrations. And if Tillerson was truly trying to repair the damaged relationship that the United States had with Russia, then conceding to the Russian demands of not having a note-taker present in the meeting in Hamburg would definitely have been a step in the right direction. Despite this optimistic outlook on Tillerson's actions here, one could also view Tillerson's willingness to do things the Russian way and not have a note-taker in the meeting as an attempt by Tillerson to keep the meetings that he had with the Russian government and Trump had with the Russian government officials hidden in secrecy. 
We will probably never know definitively whether Tillerson used his history with Russia for the benefit or detriment of the United States, or maybe both. However, much of the evidence seems to be pointing to the assertion that Tillerson often, often acted as a bad actor, working against the interests of his very own country that he had been chosen to represent. It is clear now, in retrospect, that Tillerson's choice to go along with the Russians' request to not have a note-taker in the meeting has led to extreme ambiguity about what transpired in the meeting, a mounting distrust of government in the public, and a growing dangerous trend of enabling Trump's impulse for total, unchecked power. Despite this overwhelming evidence that Tillerson's relationship with Russia in many ways was not helpful to the United States, Tillerson was not completely a Russian puppet. After Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad used chemical weapons on his own people, Tillerson, according to his House testimony, quote-unquote, gave a speech, and in that speech, which was publicly available, I did hold the Russians accountable. The Russians were, had committed themselves under the accord in Syria that they would ensure that all the Syria chem... This was back when the red lines were drawn. That all the chemical weapons would be gathered up in Syria and they would be destroyed. And that Russia would ensure that happened. And so I did call the Russians out for the fact. I said, well, either either you were incompetent or the Syrians fooled you or you were untruthful. End quote. Tillerson obviously recognized that although Russia and Syria were allies, he could not support Russia if it refused to condemn the actions taken by Assad and or understand their role in these actions. Despite this moment where Tillerson put the interests of the United States and the Syrian people before his own, Tillerson's actions on a whole as Secretary of State have been largely questionable. And it could be argued that Tillerson was calling out Russia in this example was designed just so he could appear like a legitimate Secretary of State and not like a Russian puppet. Perhaps the best description of Tillerson's legacy with regards to how he treated Russia and Putin during his time as Secretary of State has already been written. In a late 2016 Saturday Night Live skit, Tillerson was portrayed as an old friend of Putin who aided him in his corrupt oil schemes. In the skit, Putin grabs a map and tells Tillerson, quote, unquote, we're having some oil drilling problems here in Vancouver Field, end quote. Tillerson responds with, quote, unquote, oh, that's no problem. As soon as the sanctions are lifted, we'll up our intake by 30%, end quote. Like most Saturday Night Live skits, the skit on Tillerson was based on an exaggerated version of the truth or the public's interpretation of that truth. The truth seems to be that Tillerson's close ties to Putin and Russia were problematic for the United States while he was the Secretary of State. Ultimately, the Russian order of friendship that Tillerson was given years ago has become more of a burden for him than an award. He received that award because throughout most of his career, Tillerson curried favor with the Russian government, and it appears he continued to do so during his time as Trump's Secretary of State.
according to the book Fear by Bob Woodward, former Defense Secretary Robert Gates and former Secretary of State James A. Baker III had recommended Tillerson to Trump. Trump was impressed by Tillerson's confidence and apparently told aides that he was good-looking enough to represent the United States around the world. He also liked his connections to world leaders, including Putin. In Tillerson's testimony to the House Committee, he revealed that he was not prepared for Trump to offer him the role of Secretary of State when he met with Trump and several of his key advisors for the first time in Trump Tower in late 2016. Tillerson recounted that at the end of the meeting, Trump, quote-unquote, asked me to be the Secretary of State, and I was stunned. In fact, Steve Bannon looked at me and he said, You're surprised? And I said, well, yeah, I got a job. And, you know, the president said, yeah, but you're going to retire soon, aren't you? End quote. Tillerson told Trump that he needed time to consider Trump's offer before coming to a conclusion on whether he wanted to become the United States' next secretary of state. Tillerson recalled in his testimony to the House how during that time of consideration, he called Reince Priebus who would go on to become Trump's chief of staff. During the call, Tillerson said, quote, quote, Reince, I have three questions I need to ask the president before I can answer or give him an answer. And Reince said, okay, shoot. I said, no, I'm not going to ask them to you. I need to ask them to the president face to face. And I need to hear him answer those. And so Reince said, Okay, well, let me get back to you, end quote. Tillerson asked the questions to Trump and told Trump after he had asked the questions that, quote, unquote, well, based upon your answers, I have nothing. I have no reasons other than selfish reasons to tell you no. And so that's when I accepted it. And that was the only contact with anybody prior to giving him that answer, end quote. When the House committee asked Tillerson what the three questions that he asked Trump were, Tillerson responded with, quote, unquote, I'd rather not share those, end quote. The American public has no idea to this day what those three questions were. There is speculation over what these questions may have been, but there is still no hard evidence revealing exactly what they were. Regardless of this suspicious instance, Trump certainly believed that Tillerson was the right man for the job, even though he would not view Tillerson so positively as their relationship was tested in tumultuous political waters. In Wilkinson's and Penn's article, Trump was quoted as calling Tillerson's past career, quote-unquote, the embodiment of the American dream, end quote, when he officially nominated him as his pick for the Secretary of State position. Unfortunately for Trump, Tillerson, as revealed in later news articles, clearly did not view Trump in as flattering terms. On February 1st of 2017, Tillerson was sworn in as Trump's first Secretary of State after exchanging firm handshakes with Trump and Vice President Pence. Tillerson took to the podium to give a short speech regarding his gratitude to Trump, Pence, and many of his supporters. And with that, Tillerson became the Secretary of State.
He gave another longer speech the next day to the State Department. In this speech, Tillerson called for unity in these divided times, saying, quote-unquote, Each of us is entitled to the expression of our political beliefs, but we cannot let our personal convictions overwhelm our efforts to work as one team. End quote. This speech seemed encouraging, especially given how much fear had surrounded Tillerson's nomination as Secretary of State. Despite this, as Tillerson served the country as Secretary of State, his connections to Russia continued to prove troubling. As Harding recounted, when the Russian Foreign Ministry removed 775 support staff and diplomats that had been operating at United States missions in Russia, Trump tweeted a rather surprising and disturbing response. The response read, quote, unquote, I want to thank him, referring to Putin, because we're trying to cut down our payroll. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm very thankful they let go of a large number of people because now we have a smaller payroll. There's no real reason for them to go back. I greatly appreciate the fact that we have been able to cut our payroll of the United States. We're going to save a lot of money, end quote. State Department officials were horrified that Trump had defended Putin's decision over their careers. However, they were also disgusted by Tillerson's silence during the entire affair. He was their secretary, after all, but he did not come out in support of them during this troubling time. For some, Tillerson's silence spoke volumes. Apart from these troubling instances involving Russia, which seemed to indicate that he did more harm than good as Secretary of State. Tillerson at times managed to separate himself from the chaos that had engulfed the White House. However, since his role in the Trump administration was so important, he was inevitably roped in to many of the most important decisions that Trump had to make as president. According to Woodward, when the topic of whether to renew the Iran nuclear deal that had been negotiated by former United States President Barack Obama came up in the Trump administration. Tillerson stood firmly in support of the deal. Tillerson believed that the deal should be renewed for practical and principled purposes and immediately derived some ideas to go by Trump to get him to renew the deal. Tillerson talked to Chief of Staff Priebus about the reasons that he would present to Trump for why the deal should be renewed. Priebus responded with, quote unquote, The president's not going to go for it. You need to come up with a better statement. Mild, matter of fact, won't cut it. We need language that's going to actually make a, the case for President Trump's position. He's not going to like it. It was in this instance that Trump and Tillerson's relationship first began to noticeably sour. Tillerson acted as an emissary between Tillerson and Trump, informing Trump of Tillerson's proposal for renewing Obama's Iran deal. Trump, who had campaigned as being a major opponent of this agreement, responded to previous by saying, quote, unquote, you aren't going to jam this down my throat, end quote. Tillerson defended his position, telling Priebus to tell Trump that Iran has not violated the deal that Obama made with them, and that the deal should be renewed. Priebus reminded Tillerson that, quote, quote, the president is the decision maker here, end quote, and with him, quote, unquote, 
Those arguments won't fly. End quote. Tillerson eventually decided to speak with Trump in person, and eventually he and Defense Secretary James Mattis managed to convince Trump to renew the deal. When the renewal was released to the public, news hosts attacked Trump's hypocritical nature. Trump ordered Tillerson to hold a press conference to denounce Iran and the deal that Obama had made with it. Trump clearly had more power over Tillerson than Tillerson had over him. But Tillerson tried to convince Trump to change his mind on the Iran deal several times. As recounted in Alex Lockie's Business Insider article titled, Trump says he fired Tillerson due to a disagreement over the Iran deal. After Trump fired Tillerson, he looked back on the relationship, saying, quote unquote, We got along actually quite fine, but we disagreed on things, end quote, going on to cite the Iran deal as one of the issues that they disagreed on. Trump said, quote unquote, When you look at the Iran deal, I thought it was terrible. He thought it was okay. I wanted to either break it or do something. He felt a little differently. End quote. Trump eventually decided to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. The consequences of this withdrawal, however, seemed to indicate that Tillerson was right when he told Trump that he should stay in the agreement. As explained in Quint Forgey's political article titled, Iran breaches nuclear deals uranium stockpile limits. Since the United States withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal, Iran has, quote unquote, surpassed the uranium stockpile limits, end quote, that the United States had previously forced it to adhere to. May experts said this would happen, and this was the very reason these experts believed it was a bad idea for Trump to get rid of the deal. Of course, these aggressive actions taken by Iran are not solely due to Trump leaving the deal. The increasing tensions between the United States and Iran can also be to blame. Trump has started sanctioning key Iranian figures. And Iranian President Hassan Rouhani has remarked that the White House is, quote-unquote, stricken by a mental disability. Despite the obvious notion that a combination of factors led to Iran breaching its uranium stockpile limits, it would have been less likely to do so if the United States had never removed itself from the Iran nuclear deal something Tillerson had championed for quite passionately. According to Michael Crowley's political article titled, Tillerson's ouster could kill the Iran nuclear deal, Tillerson and Trump had spent months arguing over the Iran deal. Tillerson had no problem voicing his own opinion, even if that was an opinion that Trump did not agree with. Tillerson, however, did respect the bureaucratic traditional relationship between a United States president and his or her secretary of state, telling Trump, after one of their numerous disagreements. Mr. President, you have the authority. You're the president. You just tell me what you want me to do. You call the shots. I'll do what you say. End quote. Unfortunately, Tillerson's respect for the bureaucratic processes often made his positions on certain issues more malleable than Trump's, even if he cared deeply about these issues. For the Iran deal, Tillerson eventually submitted to Trump's authority, in a way, saying in a September 2017 press conference that, quote-unquote, We clearly have significant issues with the agreement. The president's been quite clear and articulate as to his concerns about the agreement itself, end quote. Tillerson went on to say how the expectations that Iran had to uphold 
had not been met. We now know that Tillerson does not actually believe what he said in that press conference because he is cited in Woodward's book as telling Trump that Iran is, quote-unquote, not in violation, end quote, of the constraints of the Iran deal. And we now know that he had worked tirelessly behind the scenes to make sure that Trump did not withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. Even though Tillerson should be remembered for fighting against Trump's positions when he disagreed with them, it should also be remembered that Tillerson often had to submit himself to the Trump agenda in the end, regardless of his own personal views. The most notable example of Tillerson speaking out against what he truly believed is in the September 2017 press conference, where he instead expressed Trump's agenda and did not counter it. Many Trump aides have to sacrifice their own personal agenda for the good of the Trump administration, but the American public tends to have higher expectations for the Secretary of State. Still, at least the American people should be grateful that Tillerson sometimes stood up to Trump and was not just a loyal yes-man. In fact, it was Tillerson's willingness to stand up to Trump that seemed to contribute to his firing. However, there were times in Washington when the fact that Tillerson was not in line with the Trump agenda only made it more challenging to understand what the administration's actual views and policies were. There were times when Tillerson's distance from Trump became dangerous to the United States. In 2018, Trump was engulfed in a controversy regarding whether he referred to all African nations in derogatory terms. As recounted in CNN's article, Trump did not discuss S-hole country's remark with Nigerian president by Kevin Liptak. Julia Manchester describes in her Hill article, titled, State Department Details Tillerson's Multi-Nation African Tour, how Tillerson immediately addressed the backlash that Trump received for his comments by saying that, quote-unquote, at this stage, nothing has changed with respect to our relationship with African nations, and we continue to see them wanting to strengthen our relationship in that regard as well, end quote. Tillerson then left Washington, D.C. to take his first official trip to Africa on March 6, 2018. Tillerson, in a way, soon became the apologist for Trump. He traveled to Africa on what was dubbed as an apology tour and issued a public statement about how the United States was always close with African nations as it has always been. Tillerson clearly did not share the same views as Trump when it came to the derogatory remarks that Trump made about Africa. It can be dangerous when a president's chief diplomat is not articulating the same message as the president himself. However, it can be equally as dangerous if the President of the United States is undermining the country's relationship with countries around the world. Tillerson seemed to have been put into a position where he had to choose what he wanted to prioritize. The authority of the United States or the authority of its President. In this instance, 
he ultimately chose the United States. Former National Security Advisor McMaster apparently believed that Tillerson operating on a completely different playing field than Trump was negatively impacting his own work for the president, according to Woodward. McMaster came to conclude that Tillerson thought that Trump was crazy and did everything he could to keep Trump out of certain policy-making decisions. Tillerson did not even let McMaster know about many of his important di diplomatic decisions before he made them, despite the fact that McMaster was an essential foreign policy official in the White House. Woodward wrote about this contentious relationship between Tillerson and McMaster, writing how McMaster believed that Tillerson could be doing more for the president if he tried, quote-unquote, to persuade rather than circumvent. He said he carried out direct orders when the president was clear and felt duty-bound to do so as an army officer. Tillerson, in particular, did not. He's such a blank, McMaster said. He thinks he's smarter than anyone, so he thinks he can do his own thing. End quote. At a certain point during Trump's first term, McMaster's rage with Tillerson's solo act became unbearable for him. He lashed out at him and told him that he was seeking to undermine the national security process. Tillerson responded with, quote, unquote, that's not true. I'm available anytime. I talk to you all the time. We just had a conference call yesterday. We do these morning calls three times a week. What are you talking about, HR? I've worked with you. I'll work with anyone. End quote. McMaster was somewhat justified to be upset with Tillerson. It is true that Tillerson was a bit of a lone wolf in the Trump administration, working very infrequently with other staffers and advisors to the president. However, McMaster's accusations seemed to be slightly exaggerated, as Tillerson had worked with McMaster in the past to get policies approved by Trump. According to Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury, Tillerson worked with McMaster to present a position to Trump that argued that more troops should be sent to Afghanistan. So why was McMaster so opposed to Tillerson when they had apparently worked well with each other previously? Well, it could be argued that, in the case of troop deployment to Afghanistan, McMaster and Tillerson were simply uniting against a powerful common enemy in the White House, Stephen Bannon, who had a powerful influence with Trump and who apparently enjoyed insulting McMaster with Trump. Every time McMaster proposed sending a surge of troops to Afghanistan, Trump would apparently direct him out of the Oval Office and roll his eyes. Ban was almost positive that Trump wanted McMaster out of the White House and triumphantly remarked, quote unquote, McMaster wants to send more troops to Afghanistan, so we're going to send him, end quote. As recalled by Woodward, Trump voiced his opposition to the United States' involvement in Afghanistan on a multitude of occasions, tweeting in March of 2013, quote unquote, We should leave Afghanistan immediately. No more wasted lives. If we have to go back in, we go in hard and quick. Rebuild the U.S. first, end quote. McMaster must have known that he needed a friend in his struggle to send more troops to Afghanistan 
and keep his job in the White House for as long as he could. And he probably saw Tillerson as a situational ally. However, it does not seem as if McMaster and Tillerson's positive relationship persevered after they worked together to convince Trump to send more troops to Afghanistan. As recounted by Woodward, McMaster reminded Tillerson about how many of the State Department positions that Tillerson needed to fill had yet to be occupied. Tillerson's comeback to this remark only furthered the allegation that he was a one-man army, devising various foreign policies almost completely on his own, without the approval of his boss, the President of the United States. Tillerson said, quote-unquote, I don't have assistant secretaries because I haven't picked them, or the ones I have I don't like, and I don't trust, and I don't work with. So you can check with whoever you want. That has no bearing on me. End quote. The fact that Tillerson had an understaffed State Department was not entirely his fault. Tillerson told the House Committee that many people he tried to nominate for jobs in the State Department were often rejected by the Office of Personnel for a variety of reasons. Tillerson describes some of these reasons, saying in his testimony, quote unquote, if people signed the never Trump letter, that would oftentimes disqualify them. If they had tweeted or retweeted something that the White House office thought was inappropriate, then that might disqualify them. If they had a spouse that might have supported the other candidate, that would disqualify them. So, you know, it was just things like that. End quote. The Office of Personnel clearly seemed to have strict criteria of who they could accept into the Trump administration. And a lot of that criteria seems to be based on Trump's political agenda and his need for loyalty. Ultimately, the Office of Personnel's rejection of many of the people Tillerson chose led to understaffing at the State Department. However, Tillerson worsened the situation by firing staff and choosing to leave many positions unfilled. But as it turned out, Understaffing at the State Department often worked out in Tillerson's favor. He liked being a one-man army. The fact that Tillerson was basically a one-man army certainly seemed to have made it easier for him to engage in activities such as the apology tour he took in Africa. That apology tour certainly benefited the United States in a time when many African countries would have needed reassurance that the United States still stood by their side. So why was McMaster so adamantly opposed to how Tillerson was using his role as the United States Secretary of State? After all, from an onlooker's point of view, in situations like the one where Tillerson took actions to mend the United States' relationship with countries in Africa, Tillerson appears more heroic because he was using his position to repair international relationships that Trump damaged. Well, the answer to why McMaster had a problem with Tillerson may lie in one of McMaster's other relationships. McMaster seems to have had a close relationship with David Petraeus, who lost the job of Secretary of State to Tillerson. In Ellen Mitchell's article in The Hill, titled, Petraeus, McMaster served the U.S. well in very challenging and difficult job. It is stated that former CIA director Petraeus apparently said, 
quote-unquote, I think very highly of him, end quote, about McMaster after McMaster left the White House. McMaster worked for Petraeus several times when they were in the Army. Petraeus was even on the board for McMaster's promotion to become a one-star general. The relationship between the two has often been equated to that of a mentor and a mentee. According to Wolf, McMaster and Petraeus both shared the same view on how to deal with the Middle East and Afghanistan. During his time in the White House, McMaster frequently spoke to Petraeus and was even accused of giving inside information to Petraeus. If this was true, then one must wonder what else McMaster was inappropriately talking to Petraeus about. In William D. Cohen's Vanity Fair article titled The Investigation That Rex Tillerson Doesn't Want You to Know About, Cohen remembers that Trump had considered several people before naming Rex Tillerson as his Secretary of State, including Petraeus. It is possible that Petraeus manipulated his mentee, McMaster, into trying to cause trouble for Tillerson. Petraeus, according to Edward Isaac DeVore's political article titled, David Petraeus would still work for Trump under certain circumstances, has since distanced himself from the possibility of working in the Trump White House, saying that if he ever did take a job for Trump, quote-unquote, it would have to be a specific set of circumstances or be, frankly, certain conditions, end quote. Still, one must wonder if Petraeus's possible resentment against Tillerson led him to turn McMaster against the man whom he lost the job of Secretary of State to. That being said, McMaster does seem to have a reason to be upset with Tillerson, even without Petraeus in his ear. Tillerson going off on missions without the help of any of Trump's other diplomatic or national security staff inevitably made McMaster's job more challenging. According to Woodward, Tillerson once went to Qatar and signed a memorandum of understanding with the foreign minister of Qatar regarding the prevention of financing terrorism and counterterrorism in general. McMaster had no idea that Tillerson did this until it came out in press reports. Trump's former staff secretary, Rob Porter, apparently claimed that Tillerson had not properly gone through the White House policy process and had not even involved Trump with this activity. So why would Tillerson do this? Well, as Tillerson told Priebus, he believed that, quote-unquote, you guys in the White House don't have your act together. The president can't make a decision. He doesn't know how to make a decision. He won't make a decision. He makes a decision and then changes his mind a couple of days later, end quote. However, Due to the valid reasons Tillerson had in separating himself from the chaos of the White House, it did make him harder to access, even by McMaster and members of Tillerson's own State Department. In his testimony to the House Committee, Tillerson recounted how his chief of staff, Margaret Petterlin, became something of a gatekeeper for him. When he was asked questions about Petterlin, Tillerson explained that, quote-unquote, I heard that there were concerns about access to me. So I tried to address those, given my time availability. So I think, and I understand, and this was true in my private sector role, people always wanted access to the chairman's office. 
I had a gatekeeper there because otherwise I couldn't get my work done. End quote. McMaster seems to have been one of those people vying for time and access to Tillerson, the chairman. McMaster likely believed, and rightfully so, that he was very important in the Trump administration. Tillerson, however, seemed to have best operated on his own and did not have time to talk to McMaster and other officials all the time and would send them to Petterlin instead. McMaster certainly perceived this lack of access as an insult. However, Tillerson was clearly right. The White House is and was often in disarray, lacking consistency and clear strategy with regard to foreign affairs. So Tillerson's isolationist style must have been beneficial for the country if he felt like he could get more done without Trump and his associates, right? Well, it is not that simple. The fact that Tillerson had a very small staff compared to previous State Departments did, in fact, put the United States in national security jeopardy. In Zach Buchemp's Vox article, titled, He Took the Job and Made It Smaller, How Rex Tillerson Failed the State Department, Elizabeth Saunders of the George Washington University estimated that because Tillerson did not fill some key posts and remove talented officials from their jobs in the State Department, he has made the United States' response to major crises incoherent and weakened the department that he was picked to lead for a quote-unquote generation, end quote. The University of Massachusetts Amherst, very own United States foreign policy scholar Paul Musgrave, explained how, quote-unquote, Tillerson had half a dozen, maybe a dozen, aides who are not familiar with Washington and especially not familiar with the State Department. But he seems to rely on these people who are loyal to him, known to him, at the expense of building relationships with the people in the building, end quote. This lack of staffers in the Tillerson-run State Department is what ended up leading to other countries losing faith in some of the United States foreign policy machines. According to Graham Langtree's Newsweek article, titled, Unprofessional Rex Tillerson Gives Meddling White House Staffers an Earful, three foreign ambassadors reported that during Tillerson's time as Secretary of State, they were addressing their questions to the National Security Council because the State Department rarely returned their calls. And when it did, it did not give them it did not give the ambassadors the information they needed. This poor dynamic was a result of Tillerson's understaffed State Department. If Tillerson was able to fill all of the positions that need to be filled, then this poor dynamic would be far more unlikely to have occurred. Although Tillerson explained in his testimony that the lack of staff was not completely his fault, the situation with staffing in the State Department was one of the biggest detriments of Tillerson's isolationist leadership style. Because so many positions were left unfilled under Tillerson, the State Department has reportedly been damaged for a generation and made it challenging for other advisors of Trump, like McMaster, to best fulfill their duties. Even though Tillerson's one-man army style of leadership allowed him to accomplish more than he could have under the restraints of one of the most reportedly divided presidential administrations. It was at the expense of many of Tillerson's aides and the national security of the United States. 
foreign ambassadors reportedly had a hard time contacting the State Department due to the lack of staff in the department. History will most likely view Tillerson's lone wolf agenda and leadership style as a mixed bag legacy. It certainly gave him more freedom to do what he believed was in the best interest of the United States. However, it also led to complications among other staffers and dignitaries. Despite his drawbacks, at least Tillerson was able to strengthen relationships between the United States and countries like Qatar and many countries in Africa in a way that he would not have been able to do if he was a weak-willed yes-man that only took actions based on Trump's whim. According to Butchum, Tillerson developed what seems to have been a competitive relationship with Bannon and Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, during his time in the Trump administration. While Bannon's conflict with Tillerson was rather simple, Tillerson represented the establishment thinking that Bannon despised his conflict with Kushner, or the quote-unquote secretary of everything, end quote, as he was described by Brian Class, in his book, The Despot's Apprentice, was a bit more complicated. Tillerson did not seem to always view Kushner as an enemy. Vicki Ward details in her book, Kushner Inc., how the New York Times came out with a story on January 7th, 2017, about how Kushner's continuous personal business negotiations with the Chinese company Anbang, while simultaneously hosting members of the Chinese government, was a conflict of interest. This was clear proof that Kushner was failing to separate his business and political life. When Tillerson read the story, however, he did not immediately see Kushner as the threat to the interests of the United States and did not view Kushner as his future West Wing rival. He simply told a colleague that Kushner might just need some coaching and concluded that he would try to check on him when he became Secretary of State. At the time the article came out, Tillerson had not yet gone through the Senate confirmation hearing just yet. It was not until Tillerson was in his position as Secretary of State that Jared Kushner began to strip Tillerson of some of his responsibilities as Secretary of State that the relationship became more hostile. Ward describes how, first, Kushner told Tillerson that he would handle Mexico because he was going to be working on the NAFTA deal for the next several months. After that, Kushner also usurped dealings with the Middle East from Tillerson's responsibilities, apparently telling him, quote-unquote, I want Israel, end quote, according to a former Tillerson aide. 
Foreign dignitaries began to see Kushner as the true chief diplomat of the United States. When Tillerson took his wife to Cafe Milano for dinner in Washington, D.C., he was surprised to find his Mexican counterpart, Luis Vidigueri Caso, there as well. According to Nahal Tusi's political article titled, It Makes Me Angry, Tillerson Vents Frustrations with Kushner, it is revealed that he was also quite surprised to find that the man that Caso was dining with was none other than Kushner. Tillerson told bipartisan members of the House Foreign Affairs Committee that he, quote-unquote, could see the color go out of the face of the Foreign Secretary of Mexico as I very, I smiled big, and I said, Welcome to Washington, end quote. Ward wrote about how Tillerson told Caso, quote-unquote, Next time, do get in touch with me, end quote. This was just one of the numerous examples of how Kushner was slowly taking over some of the most critical parts of Tillerson's job as Secretary of State. It was preposterous about the amount of power that Kushner held, and still does, in the Trump administration, is that he received this power because he is related to Trump. This is nepotism on a scale that we have not seen before in the White House. Class illustrates in his book that, although several previous presidents have appointed family members to positions of power, like when John F. Kennedy appointed his brother to the position of Attorney General, there have been anti-nepotism laws that have been put in place since then. When Bill Clinton attempted to appoint his wife to lead a task force on health care reform, the mission failed and Clinton received intense political backlash. Trump, however, has given Kushner, his own son-in-law, a position that is far more powerful than those given to any of the previous president's relatives. Kushner is a senior advisor to Trump, with bold tasks put in front of him, such as solving the opioid crisis in the United States, serving as a liaison to Mexico, a role that Tillerson clearly did not understand the gravity of, creating criminal justice reform, working closely with China, and, perhaps most ambitious out of all of these tasks, bringing peace to the Middle East. Nepotism is typically uh, the calling card for authoritarian dictatorships. Class reveals that in Uzbekistan, for example, Islam Karamov, the Uzbek dictator from 1989 to 2016, appointed his daughter, Gulnara Karamova, to a position of a senior figure at the United Nations Uzbek delegation in New York. Throughout Karamov's reign, his daughter also became the permanent representative of Uzbekistan to the United Nations, the Uzbek ambassador to Spain, and a representative at the Uzbek embassy in Moscow. Karamova provided a respectful political cover for the atrocious humanitarian crisis that her father was orchestrating. While her father was forcing children to pick cotton and systematically torturing his dissenters, Karamova an Ivy League-educated jewelry designer, was representing Uzbekistan around the world. American elites were comfortable with Karamova in a way they never should have been. The Uzbek president's daughter also profited off of her power, creating music videos and selling clothing. Karamova used a pay-for-play strategy in which she promised political influence in exchange for telecoms and various other businesses. While the Trump administration is not orchestrating child labor programs or torturing its critics, 
There are some striking similarities between Kushner and Karamova that Class recognizes in his book. Just like Karamova, Kushner tried to soften the image of Trump, especially when it was under attack. In July of 2016, a Trump campaign staff member tweeted a picture of the Star of David alongside stacks of money to make the assertion that Trump's presidential rival, Hillary Clinton, was very corrupt. The picture was quickly declared by many to be anti-Semitic, and rightly so. There was more backlash when Trump did not apologize for this clearly prejudiced post. At a moment when the campaign was in peril and Trump's image was in jeopardy, Kushner stepped in. Kushner, being Jewish from birth, published a piece titled, The Donald Trump I Know, in which he explained that the Trump campaign had merely made a careless mistake of using an anti-Semitic image recycled from a white supremacist website. Kushner's article was effective. Trump's outward image was somewhat protected from fallout, thanks to Kushner's quick thinking. Kushner was also basically impervious to political damage from envious members of Trump's team. In Joshua Green's book, Devil's Bargain, former Trump associate Sam Numberg explained why former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski was eventually fired. Quote, unquote, Trump treats you like a son if he likes you. Corey's mistake was that he thought he was one and that he could move against other members of the family. End quote. Lewandowski had made quite a few enemies in the Trump campaign, including members of Trump's family. Number clearly believed that it was these enemies in Trump's family that eventually got Lewandowski fired. In a presidential administration, a senior advisor like Kushner should never be so influential to the president that other aides are afraid of making an enemy out of him or her. That being said, this is not a normal presidential administration, and Kushner seems to have more in common with Karamova than someone like McMaster. Just like Karamova, Kushner also tried to profit off of his political power in a way that Tillerson would never have suspected when he believed that in January of 2017 that Kushner simply needed, quote-unquote, coaching, end quote. Kushner did not seem to want coaching. In fact, Kushner slowly seemed to be taking on the role of a coach, and it was clear that he viewed Tillerson as one of his players. That being said, Tillerson was not going to be easily become a puppet of Kushner, and in his house testimony, Tillerson illustrated his frustrations with Kushner, saying, quote-unquote, One of the challenges I think that everyone had, has had to learn to deal with, was the role, the unique situation, with the president's son-in-law and daughter being part of the White House advisory team. That's, you know, it's unusual. I don't recall it ever being the case before. Not that there's anything wrong with it. But there was not a clear understanding of the role, responsibilities, authorities, and whatnot, which made it challenging for everyone, I think, in terms of how to deal with any activities that might be undertaken by others that were not defined within the national security process itself. So it was just part of the challenge of how to get things done. End quote. Tillerson's testimony provides a description of how Kushner managed to gain and assert more and more power in a role which did not seem to have any clear boundaries of what he could or rather could not do. Kushner 
and his wife Ivanka, who is also serving in the Trump administration, have both been on the receiving end of the scorn of several people who worked under President Trump for the fact that they repeatedly asserted more power than they should have had. Bannon eventually got so tired of the special privileges that Kushner and Ivanka Trump had due to their familial connections to Trump that he took out his anger on Ivanka, as Woodward recounted in his book, Fear. Bannon yelled at Ivanka, saying, quote-unquote, You're a blank staffer. You're nothing but a blanking staffer. You walk around this place, and you act like you're in charge, and you're not. You're on staff. End quote. Ivanka quickly retorted, quote-unquote, I'm not a staffer. I'll never be a staffer. I'm the first daughter, and I'm never going to be a staffer. End quote. The fact of the matter is, however, that no one except Ivanka and Kushner really seemed to know what the roles of first daughter and secretary of everything exactly were, and if there was any distinct limit on their powers. This was irritating for people like Tillerson, whose role in the Trump administration was beginning to be usurped by Kushner. Tillerson even explains in his House testimony, when talking about Kushner, that, quote-unquote, no one really described what he was going to be doing. I just knew what his title was. End quote. Tillerson elaborated that he was not entirely sure what Kushner's official role as senior advisor to the president even allowed him to do, and that made his own job quite difficult. Kushner would do far more than simply sit in on diplomatic missions, and Tillerson became quite concerned about Kushner's ever-expanding power. According to Ward, Tillerson quickly became disturbed by Kushner's budding friendship with Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS. However, in order to fully understand the complexity of Kushner's close relationship with MBS, one must understand the efforts of one of Kushner's closest Middle East advisors, Derek Harvey. Woodward describes Harvey as a fact-driven intelligence analyst and a former army colonel. In the Trump administration, Harvey was appointed as the director for the Middle East on the National Security Council staff. Harvey approached Kushner and told him that his chief concern in the Middle East was the Iran-backed terrorist organization of Hezbollah. Intelligence reports stated that Hezbollah had over 48,000 full-time military members in Lebanon alone. Iran was giving Hezbollah $1 billion a year, the financial backing it needed, Harvey believed, for it to start a war with Israel. Harvey believed that there was a potentially devastating war brewing, and, according to Woodward, Kushner listened closely to Harvey's concerns. Kushner certainly never forgot what Harvey had told him, especially about how Iran was giving Hezbollah the financial support it needed. However, his mind quickly turned to Trump's first presidential trip. Woodward wrote about how Kushner asked Harvey, quote unquote, What do you think about the president going to Riyadh as our first presidential trip? End quote. Riyadh, of course, is the capital of Saudi Arabia. Harvey responded with, quote unquote, If it's perfectly with what we're trying to do to reaffirm our support for the Saudis, our strategic objectives in the region, our position has deteriorated so much during the Obama years, end quote. Harvey was excited that Trump may be taking his first trip to his region, 
since other National Security Council staffers were trying to have Trump travel to their regions. Kushner and Harvey both believed that MBS was what Saudi Arabia needed moving forward. However, when Harvey had held meetings with the CIA and other American intelligence agencies, concerns were raised that showing favoritism towards MBS could cause friction within the Saudi royal family. When McMaster found out about Kushner's plan for Trump to travel to Riyadh as his first overseas trip, he was not happy. However, as Ward explains, MBS tried to paint a picture of himself as a reformer and an ally of the United States. That certainly was enough for Kushner to host MBS at his own home for dinner. Tillerson was not present for this dinner. Tillerson soon learned that Kushner was also communicating with MBS via WhatsApp exchanges that Tillerson did not approve of. According to Woodward, when McMaster assembled a meeting of several senior Trump officials to discuss the possible Saudi summit that Kushner and Harvey were advocating for, Tillerson told colleagues that, quote unquote, From my experience at Exxon, the Saudis always talk a big game. You can go through the dance with them on the negotiations. When it comes time to putting the signature on the page, you can't get there. End quote. Tillerson believed that they should not work so hard to make a Saudi summit happen for Trump because it may mean that Trump would return to the United States empty-handed. Woodward detailed how Kushner dismissed Tillerson and several other officials' concerns, saying, quote-unquote, I understand this is very ambitious. I understand the concerns. But I think we have a real opportunity here. We have to recognize it. I understand we have to be careful. We're going to need to work this diligently, as if it's going to happen. And if it looks like we can't get there, we'll have plenty of time to shift gears. But this is an opportunity that is there for the seizing. End quote. Despite Kushner's insistence, Tillerson still had concerns. As recounted by Ward, Trump eventually agreed to go to Saudi Arabia for his first presidential trip on the terms that Saudi Arabia would work harder to fight terrorism and would buy more weapons from the United States. As the trip approached, Tillerson grew increasingly concerned that the trip was just a performance. Kushner had help in planning the summit with two people whose motivations remained quite dubious. One of these people was George Nader, a convicted child molester and an advisor to Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan, also known as MBZ, who was the crown prince of Abu Dhabi and the mentor to, of MBS. The other was then Deputy RNC Finance Chairman Elliot Broidy. Nader and Broidy privately mocked Kushner's Middle East peace plan, but sought to use their influence with Kushner in the United States government to start a war with Qatar. The fact alone that Kushner was working with Nader, a convicted child molester, should have been enough to raise some eyebrows. According to Ward, Qatar has long been a rival of Saudi Arabia, the country that Kushner and Nader succeeded in convincing Trump to visit on his first presidential trip. As the Qatari foreign minister and finance minister met with Kushner, Nader, possibly sensing that Qatari dignitaries would try to plant Qatar sympathetic seeds in Kushner's mind, told Kushner that Qatar was, quote-unquote, like a wounded snake that would turn around and bite you, end quote. 
Once again, it appears as if T Kushner did not tell Tillerson about his interactions with Nader and Broidy, even though they certainly seemed important enough for Kushner to at least mention to Tillerson. When Tillerson was asked in his testimony if he was familiar with Broidy, Tillerson said that he only knew Broidy from what he read in newspapers. When Tillerson was asked if he was familiar with Nader, he responded with, quote unquote, I'm familiar with the name. I don't know him personally, end quote. This means that Tillerson, at least to the extent of what he remembers, never met either Nader or Broidy. One would hope that if Kushner was relying on these men to help him plan the Saudi summit and was meeting with Nader to discuss various topics related to foreign countries, he would at least introduce them to Tillerson, who was the Secretary of State. However, Tillerson's testimony tells us otherwise. Regardless of the very limited access that T Tillerson had to what Kushner and his associates were planning for the Saudi summit, the summit itself ended up being a political success that tr the Trump administration touted. Woodward wrote about how Trump traveled to Saudi Arabia and stayed there from May 20th to May 21st. Harvey believed that Trump's Saudi summit was a resounding success and reset the United States and Saudi Arabia's relationship in a very positive way. According to Tillerson's house testimony, on May 20th, there was also a private dinner that Kushner, Bannon, and the leaders of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates hosted. Tillerson was unaware that this dinner was even taking place, which is proof of how Kushner repeatedly went behind Tillerson's back in order to talk and possibly negotiate with Saudi leaders, in this instance, doing so with Bannon. Bannon's experience in the Middle East, as recounted by Joshua Green in his book, Devil's Bargain, largely began when he was a junior naval officer during the time of the Carter administration. He was deployed off the coast of Iran and was quoted in Green's book as saying, quote unquote, The only way I can describe Iran is that it looks like a, the moon. You're literally months away from home, steaming across the ocean, these vast expanses. You get to this place, and it was like you'd landed on the moon. It was like the 5th century, completely primeval. End quote. It should also be noted that Iran and Saudi Arabia are adversaries. For Kushner to bring Bannon, who harbored such a dim view of Iran, a rival of Saudi Arabia, to a meeting with leaders of Saudi Arabia and its ally, the United Arab Emirates, shows how one-sided this meeting was because all of the people present seem to have some bias towards Saudi Arabia or at least against its adversaries. In Tillerson's testimony, the House Committee on Foreign Affairs explains that, quote-unquote, we understand that as part of the dinner, the leaders of Saudi and UAE did lay out for Mr. Kushner and Mr. Bannon their plans for the blockade. That wasn't something you had heard previously. End quote. Tillerson responded that it was not. So not only were Kushner and Bannon secretly having a meeting with leaders of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, but they were also getting the inside scoop on what Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates' plans were regarding the blockade of Qatar. When Tillerson 
was asked by the House committee what his reaction was to learning that Kushner and Bannon took this meeting without his knowledge, Tillerson said, quote unquote, it makes me angry, end quote. Tillerson explained that he was frustrated with Kushner's antics in not letting Tillerson know about this meeting, saying, quote unquote, I didn't have a say. The State Department's views were never expressed, end quote. The fact that the State Department had basically no representation at this very important meeting is quite preposterous. As Secretary of State, Tillerson should have been at this meeting, especially since the leaders of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates were unveiling their plans for something as important as the blockade of Qatar. Tillerson's anger was justified, but Kushner and Bannon may not have wanted a person with a more neutral view of the Saudi Arabia-Iran conflicts like Tillerson to be present at this meeting. They may have wanted their, the meeting to be biased. After all, Kushner and Bannon both seemed to have an anti-Iran sentiment. It would probably have been more diplomatic and reasonable for Kushner and Bannon to have brought Tillerson, but it does not seem that Kushner and Bannon were very concerned about how other countries, especially Qatar, would have perceived this private meeting. They needed not worry, however, as Qatar had more concerning issues to deal with. Ward recounts how, during the summit in Saudi Arabia, Qatari senior families were under the impression that Saudi Arabia was preparing to attack Qatar. They also believed that the United States either did not know about this planned military attack or they supported it. On June 5th of 2017, while Tillerson was in Australia, he was shocked to learn that Saudi Arabia and several other countries had proclaimed a blockade against Qatar. Trump quickly tweeted his support of the blockade and insinuated that Qatar was funding quote-unquote radical ideology, end quote. According to Ward, a former State Department official revealed that Tillerson was quote-unquote horrified, end quote, by Trump's tweet of support for the Saudi blockade of Qatar. Ward also explained that a Tillerson confidant said that when Kushner's aggressive stance towards Qatar became apparent was the moment when his power around the world, quote-unquote, became dangerous for the United States. The United States security architecture in the Middle East is what we have in Kuwait and what we have in Qatar. It's not like, oh, we have something in Saudi that protects us. It's a web there. And you break that apart, that's our national security at risk. It's not theirs, it's ours. End quote. Tillerson had been annoyed by Kushner's geopolitical power for a long time. But it was at this moment they saw just how dangerous that power could be in the hands of an inexperienced businessman. However, Kushner had already been fed anti-Qatar and Iran sentiment by Harvey and Nader, and he had already become very close with MBS, the future leader of Saudi Arabia. In fact, according to Ward, during the Saudi Arabia summit, Kushner and his wife, Ivanka Trump, had dinner in MBS's home. Tillerson did not know it at the time, but Kushner's family had also just sought financial aid from Qatar and been turned down just before the Saudi blockade on Qatar. 
Ward describes how, in April 2017, Qatar Investment Authority member and Qatari Finance Minister Ali Sharif Alamadi was visited by Charlie Kushner and his daughter Nicole Kushner-Meyer, who had come to him for money. Charlie Kushner is the father of Jared Kushner. Negotiations with Qatari representatives continued into the next day. Charlie Kushner seemed to have asked for slightly less than a billion dollars, apparently in return for 666 Fifth Avenue. Alamadi turned down the offer. In retrospect, Kushner's strong stance of support for the Saudi blockade of Qatar seemed like an act of revenge. A person with knowledge of the meeting told the New Yorker, quote unquote, here's a question for you. If they had given Kushner the money, would there have been a blockade? I don't think so. End quote. According to the testimony that Tillerson gave to the House Committee, Tillerson was once again never informed by Kushner of Charlie Kushner and Nicole Kushner-Meyer's particular and peculiar relationship with Qatar. Tillerson believes that he first learned about this relationship from reporting in the news, not from Kushner, who clearly should have been disclosing this information to Tillerson. In his Foreign Policy and Focus article, All Signs from Trump point to a coming conflict with Iran. John Pfeffer skillfully illustrates how the blockade of Qatar was really targeted at Iran. And some of the staunchest opponents in the Trump administration of Iran and its allies were Harvey and Ezra Cohen Watnick, who was quoted in a Daily Pennsylvanian article, according to the Atlantic's article titled The Man McMaster Couldn't Fire, as saying, Quote, unquote, we need people to be passionate about the problem of terrorism. End quote. Harvey clearly believed that Iran was one of the United States' greatest threats in the 21st century. In fact, Cohen Watnick, who seems to have been one of Harvey's closest allies in the fight against Iran and Hezbollah, is revealed by Pfeffer to have wanted to dispose of the Iranian government using espionage. Harvey's ideas that Iran was supporting terrorism seem to have influenced Kushner to denounce Qatar as supporting terrorism based on Qatar's relatively friendly relationship with Iran. That, coupled with the rumor that the Emir of Qatar, Sheikh Al Thani, had made pro-Iranian statements all appear to have influenced Kushner and then Trump to say that Qatar was funding, quote-unquote, radical ideology, as Ward details in her book. U.S. intelligence eventually determined that Saudi Arabia's ally, the United Arab Emirates, had cast the false illusion that the emir had made these alleged pro-Iran statements. Nevertheless, the damage had already been done. And the most powerful person in the world, the President of the United States, had publicly sided with the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and against Qatar and Iran. 
But Tillerson was doing, going to do everything in his power to make sure that Saudi Arabia and its allies, including the United Arab Emirates, did not go to war with Qatar. Tillerson reportedly intervened in these increasingly tense Middle Eastern politics in order to prevent Saudi Arabia from invading Qatar. According to these reports, he had somehow convinced MBS to put his plan to have Saudi forces circumvent the Qatari Al-Udid airbase and take over Dua, the capital of Qatar, on ice. In his testimony, Tillerson recalled that he had called representatives from Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, and Bahrain, the four countries that had set up the blockade, and told them, tried to convince them, that, quote-unquote, this was very detrimental to their own security in the region, threatened the future of GCC, would create challenges for the U.S. interest in the region, including our current war against ISIS. So, you know, trying to begin to lay out some points to, to them that hopefully they would consider, give consideration to, and try and then ask, trying to understand what, you know, what's going on, end quote. It seems as if Tillerson's quick quit thinking and persuasive tactics worked. It appears that he managed to convince MBS to end the blockade, much to the anger of some associates of MBS. Ward recounts how MBZ, who Nader advised, was furious with Tillerson's intervention. He was even reported to have pressed Jared Kushner to fire Tillerson. A Tillerson aide revealed that Tillerson told Kushner that his involvement in the Middle East had put the United States in a dangerous position. Kushner, upon hearing this, made a swift exit out of the conversation. However, Kushner would not make as swift of an exit on the world stage with his involvement in the Middle East as he did when confronted by Tillerson. The Intercept came out with a report in early 2018 that described how Kushner may have shared United States intelligence that revealed some Saudis that were disloyal to MBS with the then Crown Prince himself, basically handing MBS an enemy list based on top-secret U.S. intelligence. And it appears as if this actually happened, as intelligence sources confirmed this reporting with Ward. Ward wrote about how MBS subsequently detained about 200 important Saudi people, resulting in at least one of their deaths. It is presumable that MBS targeted these people based on the enemy list given to him by Kushner. Tillerson once again confronted Kushner about his pro-MBS feelings, saying, according to an aide, quote-unquote, there are seven houses, yet no one in his house was corrupt. That's statistically unlikely, don't you think? End quote. Kushner shot back with, quote-unquote, well, that's what you think. We'll see. End quote. Tillerson obviously knew that Kushner was covering up for MBS, and the relationship between the two was starting to annoy Tillerson even more, especially since he had just traveled to the Middle East in an effort to prevent Saudi Arabia and its allies from going to war with Qatar. 
it did not help Tillerson keep the region stable when Kushner was currying favor with certain leaders and ostracizing and targeting others. The Intercept reported that Kushner's favoritism of MBS became so apparent that even MBS claimed that Kushner was, quote unquote, in my pocket, end quote. According to Ward, when Broidy's emails with Nader were leaked to the press, it was revealed that Broidy and Nader had attempted to turn Trump, Kushner, and the media against Qatar. Broidy and Nader had spent millions of dollars on this anti-Qatar mission, which included their effort in publicly linking Iran and Qatar and painting Qatar as a supporter of terrorism. These emails also revealed that Nader did not hold Kushner in a very high regard, as he once stated in an email to Broidy, quote-unquote, You have to hear in private, my brother, what principals think of Clown Prince's efforts and his plan. Nobody would even waste a cup of coffee on him if it wasn't for who he is married to. End quote. The clown prince Nader was referring to, of course, was Kushner. Ward wrote about how, in exchange for his services in turning some of the most influential men in American politics against Qatar, Broidy requested multi-million dollar intelligence contracts from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Nader's plans were eventually put on ice when special counsel Robert Mueller sent agents to meet up with Nader as he arrived in the United States after flying back from the United Arab Emirates. In CNN's article, former key Mueller witness George Nader arrested on child pornography charges, the writers, Adam Levine, Marshall Cohen, and Erica Orden, mentioned that, quote-unquote, Nader was arrested upon arrival at John F. Kennedy International Airport, end quote. It does not seem likely that Nader will be able to cause anyone, including Tillerson, much more strife. Still, Nader's and Broidy's campaign to turn the United States against Qatar succeeded. Saudi Arabia went ahead with their blockade of Qatar, and Trump publicly supported them in doing so. The rhetoric connecting Iran to Qatar fit perfectly with the information that Harvey was feeding Kushner about how the Iranian National Guard was actively integrated into the structure of Hezbollah, which Harvey believed was the next ticking time bomb that could have an incredibly negative effect on the United States. However, the campaign against Qatar would not have been possible if Harvey, Nader, and Broidy did not have a person of political prominence that they used to put their ideas into action in the form of policy. That person was Kushner. And with Kushner's support, the United States supported the blockade and in doing so came very close to condoning at the start of a war between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. However, there is one man that was arguably most responsible for the war not coming into effect. That man was Tillerson. Tillerson got involved in the Middle East despite Kushner's urgings to leave the Middle East to him. 
Tosin managed to stop MBS from taking over the capital of Qatar and starting another long, complicated war. Thanks to Tillerson's quick thinking, tensions cooled down in the Middle East and a possibly catastrophic war was averted. Despite all of the times that Tillerson may have acted in ways that were detrimental to the United States foreign policy, Tillerson was clearly a hero in this instance. Propelled by a personal agenda, Kushner was dedicated to helping MBS regardless of what the cost may be for the country in the end. Tillerson managed to prove, however, that the, to the American people that even in a time when the United States government has gone to a new low in terms of honor, there will still be some honorable public servants who put the safety of the innocent people around the world above their own politics. Tillerson did just that when he prevented a war from breaking out in the Middle East, despite all of Kushner, Harvey, Cohen, Watnick, Nader, and Broidy's endless efforts to create conflict in a region. One could even say that Tillerson saved many lives in his efforts. So ultimately, what was Tillerson? Was he a hero or a bad actor? The answer seems to actually lie somewhere in between the two. Although Tillerson may have had close connections to the Russian government that seemed to have made him sympathetic to Russia, sometimes at the expense of the interests of the American public, he also fixed many international relationships that Trump damaged. Tillerson may not have appointed many employees to help him run the State Department and may have fired some very talented people already working there, thereby severely understaffing the State Department, but he also separated himself from the Trump administration so that he could get more done on his own for the benefit of the interests of the United States without having to indulge himself too much in the pangs of bureaucracy. Tillerson may not have briefed the National Security Council on his plans, thereby putting the United States in jeopardy, but he did prevent Kushner from starting a war in the Middle East. Tillerson may have been working for Trump, who leads with chaos and an affinity for not following protocol, but Tillerson somehow managed to behave like a fairly normal Secretary of State in such a hectic presidential administration. Ultimately, however, it seems Trump 
cannot tolerate normalcy in his White House. And Trump really does not seem to like to be questioned. Tillerson's efforts in trying to help Trump understand the error of some of his ways may very well have been what eventually led to Tillerson being dismissed. How exactly was Tillerson dismissed, one might ask? Well, that is, in fact, a bit of it's a complex story. To start, Woodward wrote about how Tillerson attended a meeting set up by Mattis and Trump's former economic advisor, Gary Cohen, in the tank, a secure meeting location in the Pentagon. The goal of the meeting was to prove to Trump that the United States needs its international allies and requires diplomacy in order to remain as strong as it is. McMaster could not attend the meeting due to a family obligation, but Bannon made sure that he was present. Bannon believed that the ideas that Mattis opened the meeting with were obviously representative of the globalist view of the world that he loathed. Bannon very clearly believed in the America First policy that Trump had embraced during his campaign. And, as revealed in Carly Citrin's Vox article titled The Trump Agenda, as told by Steve Bannon's whiteboard, Bannon was committed to making sure that Trump fulfilled his America First-inspired campaign promises. According to Citrin, Bannon had a whiteboard when he was working in the White House with a list of many of the promises that Trump had made when he was running for president. This whiteboard was revealed to the public when conservative activist Dinesh D'Souza took pictures with Bannon and Trump's former deputy assistant and Bannon ally Sebastian Gorka and posted them on Twitter. In the photograph, one can clearly see some of Bannon's key bullet points on the whiteboard, including, quote-unquote, buy American, hire American, end quote, and, quote-unquote, withdraw from TPP, end quote. In short, as seen on his list of whiteboard priorities, Bannon was a fervent enemy of Mattis and his globalist allies, and was going to do everything in his power to convince Trump that there was no point in retaining the United States allies. He was at that meeting to counter what he saw as the globalist agenda of Mattis, Cohen, and Tillerson, and their supporters. Woodward recounts how, in the meeting in the tank, Tillerson explained to Trump that the international democratic order that Mattis had praised was, quote-unquote, what has kept peace for 70 years. Cohen continued the discussion, telling Trump about how important trade deficits were. Trump, however, was not interested in Cohen's argument and seemed to motion for Bannon to pitch in his ideas. Bannon, in a typical Bannon-esque fashion, started with a blunt and aggressive remark of, quote-unquote, hang on for a second, let's get real, end quote. Woodward wrote about how Bannon attacked Tillerson, Cohen, and Mattis and their allies, saying, quote, unquote, The president wants to decertify the Iranian deal, and you guys are slow walking it. It's a terrible deal. He wants to decertify it so he can renegotiate. End quote. Bannon was just warming up with his attacks on his globalist opponents, questioning the legitimacy of the assertion that the countries in the European Union are the allies of the United States. Bannon brought up the fact that it did not seem like many countries in the European Union were going to support the United States if it imposed sanctions on Iran. 
he asked Tillerson and the others to, quote-unquote, give me one that's going to back the president on sanctions, end quote. When Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin tried to interject information about how important allies were to the United States, Woodward describes how Bannon raised the question again. Quote, unquote, give me one guy, one country, one company, who's going to back sanctions? End quote. No response. Trump supported Bannon's claim and asked those present that did think of the countries that made up the European Union as allies the same question that Bannon had asked them. Quote, unquote, who's going to back us? End quote. Tillerson, according to Woodward, responded this time, telling Trump, quote, unquote, the best we can tell, they're not in violation of anything. End quote. Trump responded dismissively with, quote, unquote, they're all making money, end quote, and told Tillerson that the European Union was already doing business with Iran. When they began to talk about the Iran nuclear deal, which the United States had not yet withdrawn from, Tillerson told Trump that, quote, unquote, they're complying. That's the deal. They're complying. You may not like it, end quote. Trump's response to Tillerson's argument on this topic was, quote, unquote, that's too establishment. End quote. And then Trump attacked the character of Tillerson, telling him, quote unquote, Rex, you're weak. I want to decertify. End quote. Right after the meeting ended and Trump walked out of the tank, Cohen asked Tr- Tillerson, quote unquote, Are you okay? Tillerson responded with, He's a blanking moron. End quote. It's apparent to me that the meeting in the tank proved that Trump was more willing to listen to Bannon's easy-to-understand America-first rhetoric than the seasoned and nuanced opinions of Mattis, Cohen, and Tillerson, who had expertise and an extensive knowledge on the topics that they were talking about. Woodward illustrated that Trump's refusal to take the advice of many of his experienced advisors and side with Bannon instead certainly bothered Tillerson. In fact, according to Woodward, it bothered him so much that he considered resigning. Priebus told Tillerson that, quote unquote, you can't resign right now. That's ridiculous. Come over to my office, end quote. Tillerson responded with, quote unquote, I just don't like the way the president talks to these generals. They don't deserve it. I can't sit around and listen to this from the president. He's just a moron. End quote. Woodward describes how Priebus was quite surprised by Tillerson's harsh language and told him, quote unquote, You can't just be disrespectful. You can't talk to the president the way you do. You've got to find a way to communicate. Say the same thing, but find a way to say it that's not offensive. End quote. Tillerson told Priebus that, quote-unquote, I can't sit there and listen to the president dress down these generals. I just can't take it. It's not right, end quote. Tillerson and Trump's relationship was damaged beyond repair. Tillerson did not respect Trump, and Trump did not find Tillerson's views to be on his line of thinking. 
Woodward explained how Tillerson was in Africa in March of 2018 when Priebus's replacement as Chief of Staff John Kelly warned him that he may want to finish his trip soon. On March 13th, Trump tweeted that his CIA director Mike Pompeo was going to be replacing Tillerson as his Secretary of State. Trump told reporters that he and Tillerson did not agree on many issues, saying, quote, quote, Really, it was a different mindset, a different thinking, end quote. According to Philip Elliott's Time article, Why the President Trump Fired Rex Tillerson, Tillerson's aides reported that Tillerson was unsure at first of why he was being fired. It is no secret that Pompeo is closer with Trump than Tillerson is. That closeness and Trump's desire to have close and loyal people around him may have contributed to Tillerson's abrupt departure from the Trump administration. What could also be speculated is, as MSNBC host Rachel Maddow brought up in her show on March 13, 2018, is that there was something more sinister at play. The former personal assistant to the president, Johnny McEntee, left the White House in the afternoon of March 12th, and Tillerson was fired in the morning of March 13th. Maddow cited the Wall Street Journal's article titled, Trump's personal assistant fired over security issue, when she said that McEntee's responsibilities had included making sure that Trump had markers to sign autographs and that the clocks in the White House were adjusted to daylight savings time. Despite his relatively small role in the White House, McEntee was taken out of the White House without even being able to grab his jacket, according to a White House official. Apparently, as Maddow reported based on the Wall Street Journal's article, People connected to McEntee determined that issues regarding his mishandling of taxes and online gambling had prevented him from gaining a security clearance. Despite these clear issues that would jeopardize McEntee's job in any normal presidential administration, in the Trump world, loyalty, or lack thereof, seems to speak louder than gambling and tax issues. In Caitlin Collins, Jeff Zeleny, and Jeremy Diamond's CNN article titled Longtime Trump Bade Fired Over Financial Crime Investigation, the Trump 2020 campaign announced that it was hiring McEntee in a matter of minutes after the news broke that he was leaving the White House. McEntee was brought into the Trump re-election campaign as a senior advisor for campaign operations. It could be speculated that perhaps Trump had his mindset on firing Tillerson for a long time, but when he realized that McEntee had to leave the White House on dubious charges, he decided to fire Tillerson to divert attention away from the departure of McEntee. Was Tillerson's firing merely a front that the media could gloss over while failing to recognize what was taking place outside of the spotlight. Regardless of whether Tillerson's firing was used as a cover-up for McEntee's dubious move from the White House to the Trump re-election campaign, Trump and Tillerson's friendship, if it ever existed, had been damaged beyond repair months before Tillerson left his position as Trump's Secretary of State. Wolf argued that as soon as it was revealed that Tillerson had called Trump a moron, quote unquote, his fate was sealed.
end quote. Not only was Tillerson's political life damaged, but so was his reputation. Former Trump aide Cliff Sims recounted in his book, Team of Vipers, how, quote unquote, Kelly had inexplicably leaked to the press that Tillerson was sitting on a toilet when he called to tell him that he was being pushed out, end quote. That quote alone goes to show how Priebus had been much more friendlier and more sympathetic to Tillerson than Kelly was. It makes one wonder whether Priebus was one of the only people in the White House that kept Tillerson from leaving the, leaving the White House after the disastrous meeting in the tank. In her Atlantic article, Trump's disdain for diplomacy, Yar Bayumi hints that perhaps it is better for the State Department now that Tillerson is gone. Bayumi wrote about how Pompeo has used his role as Secretary of State to rebuild morale within the department, which he has rebranded as the quote-unquote Department of Swagger, end quote. It does seem to be the case that morale within the State Department fell during Tillerson's reign over it. However, as with many circumstances in Tillerson's experience in D.C. as the United States Chief Diplomat, this case of how Pompeo has had to rebuild morale within the department is not entirely representative of our answer to the question of whether Tillerson is one of the villains of the Trumpian era or an unsung hero. Since leaving the White House, Tillerson has become a bit more publicly vocal about his opinions on Trump and Kushner. However, many people seem to have decided long ago whether they believe Tillerson is a hero or a bad actor. In my opinion, when his record as Secretary of State is carefully examined, one can see that it is clear that Tillerson was not definitively just a hero or just a bad actor. He took beneficial and detrimental steps for the United States, which makes him a bit of a mixed bag. However, in the Trump administration, where most senior officials appear to be quite morally bankrupt, Tillerson's hero moments should certainly be recognized and even admired. The role of Secretary of State has always been one of the most important in American history. And Tillerson's tenure in the White House will likely be looked upon by historians as an example of a tenuous balancing act, an attempt to balance the, most ne the mostly negative effects that Trump has had on the United States. And while it makes sense why many will view Tillerson as both a positive and negative actor in the Trump White House, the question must be raised. Is Tillerson an unsung hero for being a mixed bag? I am Paxton Phillips, and this is Politics with Paxton.
Thank you for listening to Politics with Paxton. Please follow me on Twitter at at politicswpaxton, where you can find all the latest news, updates, and episodes of Politics with Paxton.